Well, Patty, I thought uh, the conversations today with Lane from 733 Park about company valuations and ISO structure was just so interesting and insightful. Oh, so insightful. I mean, to me, it was actually enlightening. You know, I mean, I learned things, you know, that I hadn't even thought about. And uh, I think our listeners are going to really appreciate the insights that Lane brings to uh, this week's podcast. Yeah, then tell us about the uh, story from the Insiders Report. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, Visa, MasterCard are under pressure in uh, the UK. And, uh, you know, James and I talk about what this could potentially mean for uh, interchange in the U.S. And then I was really, um, James had a passionate, one of his most passionate uh, questions from the field. You want to give him? <laughs> yeah, I tend, I tend to get that way. So, yeah. yeah so about I, this topic, I know. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's one of those ones. It's one of these things. I'll, I'll leave it kind of vague so that you you don't have to listen to it. But uh, it's one of these topics that really infuriates me where ISOs are acting against their own interests. And as right. a result, agents are losing out on a fortune. And um, it's something that you really need to understand as you go into 2022. Um, well, we do start it off also talking about the impact of flipping your existing merchants to cash discounting and how that can impact your residuals. And I tell a story in there as well. So a lot of good stuff. Uh, as yeah. Patty mentioned, I get pretty heated about it. So definitely uh, take a listen to that one. Okay. And uh, James and, and our audience, uh, this week is um, our podcast is sponsored by accept.blue. Uh, check them out if you haven't already at accept.loop. Ready to go for the podcast now, James? Let's go. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Everybody, Patty and I are joined today by Lane Gordon. Lane is the Managing Director at 733 Park. How are you doing today, Lane? Great. Thanks for having me on, James. Absolutely. Hey, hey, Lance, I love the name of your company. Is it, is it also your address? <laughs> no, it's uh, it, it, it came to me strangely in a dream because uh, prior I had another company specializing in the payment space for a number of years, very long and and uh, uh, more of a blue blood sounding name. Right, and I, right. I, you know, today when you see all these companies changing names to something short that means absolutely nothing. nothing right. Um, it just kind of came to me, something short. I didn't have to spell it 12 times. So uh, uh-huh. I, I like it. I like it. Yeah, great. I it. That's great. Definitely sets you apart. And so, a great story. <laughs> well, we're very excited about the topic today. Uh, something we haven't really talked a lot about on the podcast. We're going to be talking really about scaling your ISO. And so whether you're an individual agent or you're a larger company, uh, we're going to be talking today really about the steps to maximize portfolio valuation, answering questions like, should you be a retail or a wholesale ISO? And what does that mean? So we're going to dive into a lot of details today, uh, really a kind of an education of, of the industry and the structure of ISOs. So, you know, Lane, before we get to that, though, we want to hear your story. How did you get into this crazy industry? And we know that 733 Park came to you in a dream. Give us a little more context, right? How did you end up starting and all of that? So, Sure. No, thank you. So, uh, uh, originally, I had actually started uh, right after college. I started a uh, market research company pre-internet. So this is uh, college was a while ago. Uh, I built that company. I sold it to uh, AC Nielsen, the same company that uh, I think they still do with television ratings and everything else. Yeah, sure. Um, and then I started investing in real estate. And a buddy of mine who was early days in payments said, "Gee." You know, better than real estate, where you're going to get calls in the middle of the night, especially if you're residential about a uh, clogged toilet or a leaky roof, 
um, is this thing called the payments industry, where you have this recurring revenue stream, but you don't have the leaky roofs and you don't have the clogged toilets, you don't have to deal right. with the 3 a.m. calls typically. So I, I know there are some merchants that yeah, maybe sure. they do call a 3 a.m. Yeah, night, I'm sure. That, yeah, we all, we've all known those cases, but for exactly, the most part. Exactly. So, <laughs> so that got me intrigued. And uh, I invested uh, early days in a, a small payments company. Um, and I took an active role as an investor, uh, not, not a passive one. So my role in that firm was to start finding acquisition targets for them because uh, even early days in payments, it was apparent to everybody that you were building value through organic and inorganic growth. And, and uh, I like the inorganic, which was uh, sharpshooting, finding interesting technology or other complementary payments companies or portfolios that could be rolled in to add value. And so uh, I've been doing M&A uh, uh, in the payment space as well as uh, payments tech uh, before the words fintech existed and, and, and a few mm -hmm. other terms. Uh, and uh, just been doing this for almost 20 years. And then about a year or so ago, I, I rebranded. I, I liked, uh, I wanted a, a shorter uh, uh, to the point name. I didn't have to spell out 12 times. And uh, here I am today at 733 Park. Love it. Love it. Yeah, it's great. great so, story. So I, you know, I really wanted, I was trying to think about such a big topic, you know, and I was trying to think about how do we unpack this for our audience? Because we do have a lot of, you know, individual 1099 agents listening. Some of them are brand new to the industry. Some of them have a 50,000 a month portfolio. You know, then we have those with big teams. Then we have, you know, executives at large processing companies. So I thought what might be best is let's start small and, and move towards the larger end of the scale. So Lane, my first question is, for those that are listening that are, you know, 1099 salespeople, they're independent, they're maybe they have an assistant, but they're pretty much a, you know, one man, one woman show. Um, you know, they've got maybe three, four, five, six thousand a month in residual, and they're looking to build that and grow that. What are some mistakes that you see that maybe they might make early on or some insights that, you know, if they hear this advice and they put it into practice, it might help them to better position themselves to get to those next levels and to really maximize their portfolio value? Yeah, no, that, that that's that's a great question, and there's uh, a variety of things. So, so first of all, uh, somebody starting out, somebody that has a uh, is building a portfolio that's maybe at four or five, six thousand um, dollars. When you're first starting out, typically speaking, you don't have a lot of leverage to negotiate, right? So, you know, you're doing your best as an agent, maybe to compare offerings from different ISOs, and you're trying to get the best split and everything else. But at the end of the day, unless you're, you're tried and true and you have a track record, it's very difficult to negotiate the best deal for yourself. So I, I guess what I would say in terms of, uh, you know, other than just doing your best initially, the next mistake is um, staying too long, maybe as an agent level with uh, one group or one contract and not revisiting it, let's say after you hit 10,000 a month or you hit 20,000 a month mm -hmm. and then determining, gee, maybe it makes sense for me to either get another agent agreement with somebody else or to renegotiate my agreement or maybe even to think about as i start scaling up registering direct and becoming a full iso yeah i, I love that would, would you also agree to that you know kind of in, in what i see in correlation with that is a lot of agents actually get themselves locked into agreements <laughs> that mm -hmm they can't get out of, you know, right. I get calls all the time from agents that say, well, I'm at 10,000 a month. I can't leave. If I do, I'll lose my residuals. You know, is that something you're seeing as well? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not typically the, the, um, I haven't seen too many like that where they lose the residual with the exception of 
way back in the day, the original, um, and they're not around, so I can mention the name, uh, Card Services, uh, way back in the day. Right, right. that's when I these... first got into business. Okay, so so again, not, yeah. not trying to, to, to poo-poo nope. them, but, but, but their know. agreement was, was very, very tough if you were an agent, because effectively your residual could get clipped off at any point in time if you you know, it almost to me, it seemed looking at those agreements, if you look the wrong way, this thing, that thing, you talk to somebody else, you dotted the wrong moving. eye. <laughs> so so effectively, you yes, you were building this revenue stream, but you could never sell it or you can never extract extra value from it by having a uh, a transaction with somebody because you were locked in and, and God forbid you tried to sell it and they didn't like, you know, it, right, you, you sure. essentially they could clip the whole residual. Typically speaking, I haven't come across a lot of things that are that onerous uh, in the past 10 years, but there may still be. So, so James, I mean, it's a great point. I mean, if somebody is getting into something, read that fine print. I mean, if they can clip your residual just because you're signing another agent agreement or something else, that, that obviously should not be that way. Because if you worked hard to build that, as long as you're not trying to move your merchants onto somebody else and you're honoring the spirit of your initial agreement, you should be entitled to those residuals. And I, I would actually say it's, it's been interesting dealing with, and I think it's it's an interesting difference in audience because I know on your side, Lane, dealing with a lot of more of the M&A and, and the agents that are building a pretty good portfolio, generally what tends to happen in my experience is I would say 30, maybe even as much as 40% of the new agents that come into the industry do get into these agreements that are very prohibitive. And but once they get to two or three, 4,000 in residual, they finally realize, wait a minute, I'm just building a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hold on a second. Right. Right. And then they end up going somewhere else, but they lose that first two or three thousand a lot of times, um, and it's kind of a false start. So I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's super important, like you said, to make sure that they have the flexibility to be able to renegotiate and get a better deal once they have some leverage. So I love, yeah. I, love that. I mean, I to kind of follow up on that though, you know, it, it sounds to me like you know, even for the independent, they still need to have a structure around their business. We all know that that's a given, right? So, you know, how how did how and when, shall I say, um, do they need to reevaluate um, or revisit? You know, um, it, you said like in terms of dollars, but I'm wondering if it, if it, you know what you say. I think you said four or six thousand a month, you know, something like that, right? But could it also be the type of business model that that the uh, agent or ISO has chosen? I mean, you know, could could they have sort of a ben- You know, is it good to have a benchmark that says go back and revisit the relationship? at 5,000 or something like that. Yeah, and and, and uh, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, again, uh, you know, I would think that uh, once the agent figures out where they're going with things um, and they start to see traction and they start to have a successful methodology of how they're signing up their merchants. Right, the methodology, yeah. Now they know they've got a rhythm. Now they know they mm-hmm. can create value. And and right. once you 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 feel that you see that as as an agent, I think that's probably a good indicator. Certainly, dollar wise, I I wouldn't uh, let things get above five eight thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, because uh-huh. at that point you're you're you can't then extract that value for yourself. So. Right. Um, you can certainly take that brain knowledge and and, and transfer that uh, learning to to doing it again. And like yeah. James said, yeah, I, I agree with you, James. If you're in a lousy agreement and you have the wherewithal to realize it, but now you know what you're doing. If you have to walk away from two or three thousand a month, 
that's just the price of doing business because you can make that two or 3000 back in short order if you right, really right. know what you're doing in this business right. and, yeah. and then create value for yourself in the back end. And, and, and it seems to me what you're also saying is, is there has to be a, you know, a huge degree of confidence um, to, to be able to know when it's the right time. Right. I think so. I, I think so. If you're just dibbling and dabbling in this and, and you get a little book or whatever, uh, and, and it's a very occasional sporadic thing, uh-huh. then maybe then maybe it's OK. Maybe you just let it roll at the two, three, four thousand sure. a month. And it is what it is. But if if this really is a career and it's something that you're building uh, at a certain point, you got to take a hard look for yourself and, and uh, make it even more worth your while. Sure. Yeah, good, good stuff. Good so stuff. so I want to. I want to transition just a little bit, Lane, to, to two topics. I wasn't sure where to stick them as far as small versus large organizations because they affect everybody um, as far as portfolio valuation. I want to talk for a minute about technology integration. So mm-hmm. obviously this is on everybody's mind. You know, are they selling Clover? Are they selling integrated, you know, Zusa or other point of sale systems? Um, are they integrating with, you know, virtual terminal, whatever it is, right? So I'm just curious from your perspective, whether it's, you know, larger or small portfolios, what is the impact that you're seeing from, that agent or ISO that really is focused on integrating technology with their merchants versus those that are still just slinging the individual terminals and really aren't focused on that? Yeah, no, that that's a great question. And, and, and I would say um, there's even a further differentiation, which is, um, you know, you're integrating into Clover for as the example you used, right? So, uh, but now we have to remember that Clover itself is becoming a large platform. So, what is the value add that you're doing? You, are you really keeping that merchant sticky or have you made it sticky for Clover, but another merchant processor that also sells Clover can just come in at another price depending on your agreement and go ahead and at some point in the future, grab that merchant. From my perspective, typically on M&A deals, especially as they scale up, Somebody that's found a way to integrate, uh, uh, and everybody's talking about ISVs, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, that integrates into a technology partner directly. So some sort of an online website or, or uh, let's say a practice management system in a, in a doctor's office or, or a legal billing software or anything like that where you can have some sort of direct connection or APIs that tie into that system. Um, to me, that creates kind of the highest and best integration because now it it, uh, it becomes very painful for the um, software company to remove you as the merchant processor or servicer to remove you from their system. So to me, that's kind of like the highest level of um, integrated technology. And that translates in terms of what is the price you're going to get if and when you decide to sell the portfolio, sell the ISO, um, what percentage of your book is integrated. Granted, people will still look at Clover as being, you know, that's great. That's better than just having a standalone terminal that's connected to nothing. But the next step beyond a Clover, for example, would be that direct integration into some sort of software. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So, um, I, yeah, there's so many more things I'd like to say about that, but I'm not going to. We'll move on because we've got time constraints. So uh, the next one is uh, cash discount and surcharge. So again, a non-cash adjustment type programs, sur- you know, compliant surcharging. These are hot topics. And honestly, I wasn't sure how it was going to play out initially from a valuation perspective because, yeah, your margin is like three, four times higher on average, but 
you know, are, are buyers still concerned that, you know, well, maybe these are going to change, margins are going to compress. I'm just kind of curious, to, you know, what are you seeing in the marketplace for how this is impacting valuation? So it, it's true. And, and it's, a, it's a great question. Um, a number of years ago, when some of these programs first came out, it was, uh, I guess, like anything else new, it was very unclear to us in the M&A world, was this going to add to valuation? I think when when somebody like cash discounting, when it first came out, I, I could actually cite cases where it actually took away from valuation because right. mm-hmm. buyers were real nervous. What does this right. mean? Is it going to evaporate tomorrow? What now? We're years past that. And so consequently, the assumption on buyers uh, part is this thing ain't going away, at least, you know, in the foreseeable future. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's margin compression in everything, but it seems like there's still so much more upside to cash discounting and some of these other programs that we're really not seeing a lot of that. So it's actually giving lift to the value of these books. And again, when it first came out for a little period, maybe six months, it was somewhat yeah. the opposite because people didn't know what to make of it. Yeah. And I think, I think it'll be interesting too, as these two concepts now come together where initially to sell cash discounting meant a standalone terminal and, and, and literally removing the integration a lot of times where it's like, well, we can't use your point of sale system for this. You know, now we're starting to see the technology companies are saying, wait a minute, there's enough margin here. We can give our technology away for free um, or whatever. And so they're now all of a sudden it's starting to become that, you know, kind of rocket fuel being added to it, which is better technology and the cash discounting. So I think it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out with portfolio valuations over the next kind of 36 months. And, and of course, as we see the legislative and uh, regulatory environment change as well, you know, it'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, but at the moment it, it, it seems to just be adding value because uh, more revenue, uh, yep. you know, and, and uh, today, <laughs> yeah, it's, that's okay. it. Yeah. So, so let's shift if, if you don't mind just a little bit to the, to the basic concept of growing your ISO, okay? You know, that being, you know, an ISV, a merchant sales team, you know, um, you know, maybe doing like 20 to 50 deals a month. Um, what should these guys be thinking about? Where should they put their attention um, for increasing the value of the portfolio? I mean, we talked about cash discounting, we talked about technology, but, you know, that's sort of a finite thing, right? I mean, there are strategies to get more customers or to, you know, integrate with more technologies, to partner with, you know, upstream partners. What are what are some of the things you think they should think about? Yeah, no, that that's, uh, those are great questions. And, and by the way, excuse me if there's a helicopter flying uh, uh, directly uh-huh. over the, uh, the building here. But uh, <laughs> uh, so, no, those are great questions. I mean, I, I think what I would say to you in terms of trying to create value, I mean, again, what I see, because typically people are coming to me and we're, we're helping them value these things and, and bring them to market or whatever it might be. So at that point in time, I start looking at, well, what type of an ISO is this? Is this an ISO that just went for just sheer volume, which some mm-hmm. do, right? Right. So there's some folks that just, um, they either throw a ton of money at uh, uh, Google AdWords and, and some other campaigns, and they're just going for, uh, you know, sign them up as, as many yeah. as you can. And, and they're a sales machine. Um, and then there's other groups that, um, although the gross number of new merchants each month is not particularly large, they're either going for a specialty vertical mm-hmm. that they're a specialist in, mm-hmm. um, whether or not they have technology, maybe they have advice, maybe they have insight, maybe they're from that, you know, for instance, car dealerships, maybe they sure. 
used to be in the dealership business. And so they right. can actually counsel their clients on, you know, uh, how things might work and why their system, you know, who knows, there may be some degree of technology, but ultimately um, it's, it's all about creating stickiness and continuing to add merchants, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you can do that because you're a specialist, you know, you just deal with, uh, for example, cemeteries or flower shop, or whatever <laughs> it might be. I hadn't thought I mean, about I mean, that for again, a yet. <laughs> well, you know, your cemetery, it's a, it's a business going to be around forever. Right? But, right. Uh, so, you know, so, so, so you're a specialist in that, uh, you know, funeral homes, whatever it might be, you know, you may just by virtue of that have a very sticky base. Or let's mm -hmm. say, for sure. example, um, you know, you're going on an ethnic play. Let's say uh, uh, your, your family's originally from another country. You're over here in this country. You've discovered the wonderful world of merchant processing. And now you're just going after, let's say, uh, Vietnamese, Vietnamese Americans because you've got certain, uh, uh, you're able to have a support team that can sure. answer their questions, especially for some people who aren't fully capable in English. Right. Um, again, you start to create some stickiness and some added value. Um, and of course, something, and again, as I, as I mentioned in, in the prior question, anything that has multiple touch points, so particularly software and software integrations where sure. now it's, it's, it's so embedded. And what I mean by embedded, because sometimes I'll see groups that say to me, oh, well, we're in this particular software. Um, and I ask them, well, you're in that, but are you the exclusive uh, merchant services provider, or are you one of 12 or 100 mm -hmm. choices that right. uh, the merchant can choose? So, you know, it's great to be in a software company and, and, and be a choice. It's okay, but it's phenomenal if you've negotiated a deal where you are the exclusive. So there is no choice. And quite frankly, oftentimes people will sign up for some sort of a SaaS uh, software as a service thing. Mm -hmm. And the merchant services are included with whatever web hosting or something else. And that's just the package. And so, you you know, they're there as long as they're using that provider. The merchant is there. They're processing with you. They're not asking five million questions about what the rate is. It just is what it is. So yeah. to me, that's kind of, you know, scaling up and, and right. uh, you know, but two models, if you may. Yeah. And I, I think it's super interesting that, you know, there's a lot of attention paid to, um, you know, integrating with the biggest platforms. Mm -hmm. And what we've been, you know, talking about in the podcast for the last couple of years is sure, like you said, that's great. But, you know, meanwhile, there's all of these smaller ISVs that have a really specific niche <clears throat> that would love to make some money on payment processing, but they don't really understand the payments industry. They don't want to deal with it. And they would love to have a partner, um, especially one that can add to their distribution and that's willing right. to go out and pitch it to their, you know, their client base, right? So, Okay, so so let's transition here. I want to I want to start talking about large organizations, kind of in between the small and the large. Though uh, is this idea of a retail versus a wholesale ISO? Now I actually don't know that we've ever specifically used these terms and defined them on the podcast. To be honest with you, I don't so think we have. Yeah. So Lane, let's talk about this. Talk about risk a little bit. So what is a retail ISO? What is a wholesale ISO? Give us a little context here. Sure, uh, uh, and uh, yeah. So so just to give you a little context between retail and wholesale. So effectively. Uh, you know, you think about it like this. Um, uh, if you typically, when you're a smaller ISO, you're just starting off and everything else, uh, you have, um, 
you have less options, right? Because you have minimal leverage in terms of trying to negotiate and trying to, um, uh, you know, uh, negotiate all these little perks. Uh, as you grow, there's more choices typically. And so one of the choices, wholesale retail, uh, wholesale also known as full liability, retail known as zero liability. Now, the issue is typically if you go wholesale, you can pick up a certain amount of basis points and that varies from agreement to agreement. But let's say for point, you know, for example, maybe it's somewhere between 10 and 20 basis points, right? So uh, some folks that have, you know, 40, 50,000 merchants, they may say, wow, that's, that's, that's a lot of basis points. Uh, it's worth it for me, but uh, to, to try and now get a wholesale agreement but now you've got to have your own risk and underwriting departments. Mm -hmm. And on top of building that and managing it, it's exactly what it is. You have that risk, you have that full liability. So if some merchant is taking all sorts of phony credit cards and they're not shipping merchandise or whatever they're doing there, and you wake up the next morning and there's you know $300,000 worth of the charges, if you can't get that back, uh, that's with you. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's kind of a risk reward. Now, what you do get typically when you do become a full liability or a wholesale shop is you also get as part of taking that risk portability, which allows you to take the portfolio that you built and potentially move it on to another processor or move it on to another sponsor bank or both potentially. And that has a lot of value because now as you really build a large ISO or a large portfolio, there's a lot more players that want that book or ISO for multiple reasons to balance their own bin, to do other things with it. And so it starts to become very, very attractive. That being said, if you're risk adverse, you know how to sell, you just love building these things and building up your monthly residual, you can do retail all day long and just not deal with it. And it's in this current market, it's still very, very attractive as you scale up beyond 50,000, you know, 25,000 a month, 50,000 a month, 100,000 a month starts to become attractive to other players for other reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to dig into this just a little bit more in, in my next question, because you brought up portability, which I was hoping that you would bring that up. Um, I get asked about that all the time, you know, small ISOs are like, how do I negotiate portability? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, first of all, you don't uh, at your yeah. level. Secondly, yeah. you know, it means taking on risk and writing and all this. So we have this conversation. Um, so let's talk about these larger organizations. So, you know, they're, they're doing, you know, more than a thousand deals a, uh, a year, uh, you know, and, and so they might be doing, you know, 5,000, 10,000 deals a year. They've already got a big portfolio, 30, 40, 50,000, you know, mids. So two questions I have. Mm -hmm. Number one, help them understand why is portability so much more valuable and so important to an FIS, a FISERV, a TSIS, or whatever, right? Why, why is that more valuable? And then also, um, are there other tips or insights that you would give these larger organizations that are looking to maybe exit in three to five years, you know, of what are some things that they should be thinking about? Yeah, no, that that's a great question. So, um, and I will, uh, I'll, I'll add a little uh, curve in there, which is um, I have seen a, a handful of retail agreements that did appear to have portability. Wow, that'd be um, great. <laughs> yeah, some, somewhat, somewhat of a very rare, rare creature in 20 years of doing this thing. Sure. I have seen a couple, but again, the only way to achieve that, as you just said, James, is as you've scaled up and now you've got right. that negotiating power and leverage. So, um, 
you know, in terms of why is it much more valuable? And, and again, I, I want to be careful because there's definitely a bump in valuation if you've got this uh, fully portable book, right? But it doesn't mean that if you built a retail book that's, you know, 300000 a month, uh, for example, or 100000 a month in, re- in uh, revenue, it doesn't mean that that's, you know, oh, geez, I'm just stuck at that 100000 I can't sell it or flip it or whatever I want to do. So, uh, but generally speaking, uh, having that full portability, it allows a whole variety of other different buyers. So it could be a processor, okay? And let's say you've got a low-risk book. The processor may have an issue where they need to balance their bin, and they've got mostly high-risk transactions. So now they buy yours, they move it off of the current processor, put it onto themselves. Well, all of a sudden now they look at their transaction count. It's a much cleaner blend of high-risk, low-risk transactions. That's got value to them. Why? Because they're making two, three, four hundred basis points off of their high-risk merchants. You just sold them a low-risk book that you know might have been priced at who knows forty basis points or, or something like that. They don't care. They don't care if they give it away. They just want to make sure that they're balancing. Typically, at least historically, it's been that way for their for the high-risk. And then there's other purposes. Other people have favorable deals with sponsor banks, certain sponsor banks. They want to grab that book. They want to move it onto their own bank. Um, you know, there's a variety of different things. And so effectively, uh, it also, you know, it gives them the right to touch the merchant directly. Yeah. I was about to say, yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the retails is, you know, you, you can't really touch them directly, which is not to say, depending on the agreement that you can't maybe sell them other services so long as they're not directly competing or you're trying to pull their merchant services away. But Generally speaking, it allows a lot more latitude. So, so I would say to you that uh, the bump in valuation, you know, is probably somewhere. I'm just I'm throwing a dart here, but it's probably around fifteen percent, twenty percent more yeah. if you've got a fully portable book versus something that's retail. Um, you know, it depends, but there's certainly a bigger market for that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me because it almost kind of takes a transaction from. You know, like you said, it's not that you, you can't get a great deal at 100,000, 300,000 as a retail ISO, you know, monthly residuals, but there it's just a financial transaction. So it's a very, in some ways, it's a really simple deal because it's like, okay, we're buying this future income. I mean, let's, let's, you know, what's the present value of it? And here we go. And let's figure out our ROI and, and here's your price right. versus when it's wholesale, it's like, they're buying those merchant accounts. They're buying relationships. They're going to want to dig in and like, okay, wait a minute. You know, we have this great technology product that we could actually sell into your book and et cetera, et cetera. Even things like, you know, price increases, things of that nature, um, you know, that maybe aren't as popular to talk about, but they happen. And you can't do that if you have a retail book from with somebody else. But if you bring it in house, all of a sudden it gives you a lot of options. So, so we talked about that, Lane. What, what are some other ones? What are some other tips for these larger organizations? that are looking to exit three to five years, what should they be thinking about in 2022? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. So so I think if, you know, you're building a larger ISO, you're looking to exit, um, again, uh, you got to keep your eye on the ball in terms of what you don't want to appear as and, and don't want to be uh, is a churn and burn shop. And I've come across, I think uh, I'm sure you have as well, James, quite a few of these during my career, which uh, you hear somebody that they're signing 400 merchants a month and they got this amazing count and everything else. And, and what you're not hearing from them is that they're losing 390 merchants a month, right? <laughs> right. So, 
you know, and, and again, it, it's great to be signing them, but if they're leaving as quickly or sometimes faster, um, a buyer sees that immediately. And, right. and, and there's, you know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a very tough sell. So uh, it, it's all about building stickiness uh, through some sort of value add, either you've tied into something, you, you're a specialist in something, uh, or uh, you've built some sort of ingenious sales machine where you're, you're able to just find these people, again, find them without losing them uh, anywhere near as quickly as you're bringing them on and, and, right. and you just keep having this revenue. And even if there's margin compression, it, it's still okay because this is a growing machine. Right. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I like to look for that. I like to look for things where there's some sort of specialization in, in some sort of a, a few key areas that always becomes attractive. For example, let's say that you've got some sort of specialization in uh, medical somehow. You're tied into uh, uh, elective surgeries or this thing or that thing or whatever your your little play is there. It then becomes interesting for other software and, and out of industry, outside of the payments industry type companies that uh, may be a large medical provider, maybe a chain of medical clinics or something else that now sees this as an opportunity of, wow, we can pick up this payment platform company that we can now push out to all of our clinics. And so now we can own our own payments game and we can make, you know, and, and getting this extra revenue stream off of all of our own. So when you start to make plans where um, you've got some sort of forte or specialty, et cetera, uh, it starts to provide value. I will say this, the generalist, you know, if you've collected a ton of merchants, there's still some other value out there because uh, there are web companies, there are there are hosting companies, development, all sorts of other things that sure. they have generally applicable. They want to, yeah, they want to yeah. go in and they want to upsell those merchants on their services. So so again, it it's uh, but keeping those merchants, building your 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 revenue stream, showing a low churn. Uh, all super important for the long run in terms of being able to establish value. Love it. Well, uh, Lane, this conversation has been extremely insightful. I've really enjoyed it. Um, before we end, though, I definitely want to give you an opportunity to tell our audience a little bit more about 733 Park. Um, you know, what exactly do you do? Uh, what kind of deals should people be thinking about that, hey, I need to think about Lane when I'm in this situation? You know, give us a little context of the types of uh, partnerships and deals that you're looking for and also give our audience a way to reach out in, in that case. Thank sure. you. It is the uh, elevator pitch. <laughs> yes, yes. You, you, you got it. Thank you, Patty. So, so effectively, 733 Park, we do everything from valuations on portfolios, valuations on ISOs. Uh, we represent ISOs and portfolios for sale. And we also represent buyers that come to us that are looking to do certain things. They have a special reason, a software company looking to buy certain types of portfolios, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at the moment, we've got a variety of very aggressive buyers looking to buy small to mid and large retail and wholesale books. We've got buyers looking for things on their own bin. Um, and we're representing some very interesting ISOs that uh, range everywhere from uh, about a million dollars in EBITDA up to about $10 million in EBITDA. So um, we are market makers in the space. We've been doing this for, for 20 years. I almost said 30 years, but give it a few years. Uh, we've been doing it for a long time. If you wanna reach us, best way is uh, uh, hit our website, hopefully easy to remember, uh, 733-733-park.com. 
that's 733park.com or Google me, Lane Gordon. Usually uh, there aren't too many of us uh, and you can find me and uh, love to get on the phone, love to talk to you if you get an ISO portfolio, et cetera. We can talk strategy three years out or we can talk about positioning today. So uh, thank you. I appreciate that opportunity, James. Oh, thank Absolutely. you. Like James said, this has been incredibly insightful, especially for me. Um, you know, I'm a sort of a payments maven. So, you know, uh, understanding how the valuation process goes. Thank you so much for, for helping me and helping our listeners. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. And I hope to speak to you in the future. And thank you again and Happy New Year. So, Patty, our podcast sponsor, of course, is the processor agnostic gateway, Accept Blue. It's accept.blue is the website, no.com or .net. Uh, I thought today, Patty, I would just highlight what I think is a great feature. It's something that a lot of different um, gateways do provide, but Accept Blue has a little bit of a different spin on it, and that is their hosted payment pages and email invoices. Yes, um, yes, right. The big difference with that is that they allow the merchant to really white label those and kind of make them their own, mm-hmm. which is very nice. And so what will happen is, you know, when you think about a merchant today and you think about the point of sale and how it's changed with this kind of omni-channel focus, you know, right. merchants want to be able to accept payments. They, they should be accepting payments in a variety of ways. Um, and with accept.blue, you can really add two additional ways that they can accept payments very, very easily. Number one mm-hmm. is a hosted payments page. I mean, it's the easiest thing right. ever. Literally, easiest. it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a link right. to a web page. Mm-hmm. When you go to that web page, it says hey, you want to pay this merchant some money? Go ahead. And the, the yeah. consumer can put their information in. Yep. But the I've amount they want to pay. T- I've done, it, done yeah. it with several doctors, for example, right? Yep. And so yeah, a, lot of companies will, a lot of companies will just put that link right on their website. We'll right. click on it. They'll go and make a payment. And of course, as we talked about last week, um, you know, Accept.Blue also allows them to have that ACH option. Which is um, very important. Which is fantastic, especially for larger transactions. And you can do the non-cash adjustment type program and, and you know, change that based on ACH versus credit. Mm-hmm. Um, the other really simple way is with email invoicing. And right. this has been around for a long time, but again, Accept.Blue just has a really simplified, unique way that they go about it. And their, their interface is so easy that a merchant could just, it's a no brainer. You log in, you, you create a new invoice, it's you sleek. email it. Yep. Yeah, it's really it's sleek. Really it's really sleek. nice. And yep. when that uh, when that customer clicks the link, they're going to be taken to a page where the, the amount is preloaded and where they can, again, choose ACH or, or uh, credit. And again, that's just really, really nice. If, and again, you don't have to enable ACH, but for these, you know, a lot of the card not present, you know, contractor type merchants, they really enjoy having that. And it just really enables them to collect a lot more payments. So And the, and the B2B players also absolutely. Really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So if you haven't done so already, and you're a listener to the podcast and you get value from it, please support our sponsors. That's really important to Patty and I. Um, that's how we continue to do the podcast and why we, one of the big reasons we do it is we want to educate the industry, but you know, Hey, we have, you know, we have uh, sponsors and we want them to do well. So if you haven't, that's already, please go to accept.blue again, no.com, no.net, anything like that. It's just accept.blue um, type that in your web browser right now. If you haven't done so yet, click on the contact us. Uh, reach out to them, get a free demo, uh, tell them that you heard about it on the podcast. We would appreciate that. And I know that you're going to really enjoy what you see from Accept.Blue. Yeah. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass.
If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, in today's questions from the field, I actually just wanted to tell a, a very interesting story from an agent and talk about the impact of cash discounting and surcharging on portfolio valuation, but not exactly in the way you might think. So, um, I was talking to an agent recently. Uh, this is an agent that uh, you know I'm a uh, you know consultant for him, and so he pays for my time. And you know, so anyway, well, one of the opportunities that came up was uh, there was a competitor that had a small portfolio. I think it was around four thousand a month in uh, residual, and um, this competitor is really interesting. So this is an individual who'd been, who was in the payments industry like 10 years ago, right. built a portfolio to like 6,000 and then kind of went dormant with it and just almost kind of retired with it. And now is looking to actually retire. Doesn't want to take the calls anymore from the clients looking for somebody else with a high level of service and all this. So, um, so this individual, uh, went in and I taught, walked him through and, you know, we talked through all of this and I helped him figure right. it out. And so, he went in and buys his portfolio. Now, the reason that he bought this portfolio was not to buy the 4,000. So that 4,000, I think he ended up getting it for, I don't remember the number, something like a 16X or something like that. So okay. very, very reasonable multiple. Mm-hmm. And, and a big part of it really was his promise to like maintain the high level of service to, and all that. You know, this person cared about the reputation. So right. Anyway, gets the deal done. But the reason that, we, that I advised that he really moved forward quickly and get this deal done is that this guy had signed a five-year um, agreement that basically the ISO never thought it would matter, but the five-year agreement basically said at the end of five years, you can call and flip the accounts if you want, you know? Well, oh, wow. he was able to assume this agreement without any substantive change to it. He was able to get the 4000 a month, and then he was able to follow up with all of these clients that were an interchange plus and flip a bunch of them to cash discounting. So right. he bought a $4,000 portfolio, Last I talked to him, he was making 11000 a month on that portfolio. Wow. And wow. this was How like over ago? the course of like eight months. He went from wow. 4000 to eleven. Wow. Um, now, this is something that I'm seeing as well with a lot of agents who have an existing book and they're reaching out to them. And so one thing that I would really challenge our audience on as you go into 2022, as you think about income opportunities in 2022, um, let me just challenge you on a couple of things real quick. Number one, look at your current portfolio. Um you may or may not like cash discounting. You may not like non-cash adjustment. You may not like compliance surcharging. I don't know, you know, whatever your opinion is, but just understand you have a lot of competitors that are going to be pitching your merchants on these programs this year. So um, if they haven't already been pitched, I'm sure they have, but if they haven't already been pitched a lot, they're going to get pitched a lot more. And this Mm -hmm. is the thing, the offers they're going to get pitched are a lot more compelling in 2022 than they were in 2021 and way more than they were in 2020. So meaning the offers are going to get now is, hey, we'll come in and install a brand new point of sale system for you. That's like a nice one for free. And we'll, you know, like, I mean, people are really starting to understand. All these other value adds will give you, you know. Right. Yeah. It's like cash discounting. People are starting to think, as Lane mentioned, you know, thinking it's going to stay around for a little while. Well, yeah, it's going to stay around for a little while. You know, how much would you spend to go get one of these accounts? I mean, it's worth three or $4,000 investment in a point of sale or whatever to get a big account. So um, so just understand that it might be time for you as we move into 2022 to just evaluate your portfolio, take a look at it. You know, what percentage of your portfolio is on cash discount surcharge? You know, if you're less than 30% cash discount and surcharge, um, there's almost certainly opportunity for you there. Uh, and when I say opportunity, I mean, you know, low hanging fruit, like make a phone call right. and 
probably with one, you know, face-to-face interaction with your clients, probably 30 to 35% of them will go to one of these programs, especially if you have multiple options available, which is my favorite way to do it. So, um, and again, if you do that, you know, especially on your larger accounts, this is the thing, but I see a lot of agents making a mistake is they'll go after their smaller accounts. Well, my smaller merchants, they might want this. Well, what you don't realize is now because of technology advancements and everything and, and acceptance, you know, your larger merchants might want this as well. And, sure. you know, one, you know, you look at a small account you're like, well, I'm making 80 basis points of margin. Now I'm going to make 160 because I do cash discount or, or surcharging or something. Right. Or maybe it's 180. Well, that's awesome. You just like almost, you know, you doubled or a little bit more than doubled your residuals on that account. Well, that's good. Here's where the real opportunity is though. The real opportunity is you've got that merchant doing a hundred thousand a month in volume and you're making 10 basis points. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? They're going to do three and a half percent non-cash adjustment because that's just what it is. You know, you're not going to have to discount it the way you would traditional. So now you're going to go from 10 basis points to 150. That's yeah. incredible. You just multiplied your residuals on a big account. You multiplied like your residuals by 15. Like, yeah, it's yeah. insane. It's like, it's, it's like insane. you literally just sold 15 big accounts by taking one account you already have and converting yeah. them to cash discount. So yeah. yeah, that's a really, really big deal. And, and so, you know, just think about that. Something for you to think about. And, and secondly, what I'd say is 2022, I've talked about it so many times. It's funny, actually. It's one of the things I've gotten a lot of... Um, uh, disagreement about from people, online communities and things like that. And I, I'm going to continue talking about it because I know I'm right. <laughs> so, um, but this idea of using capital, you know, I know oh, yeah. the ISOs hate it when I talk about this because they don't mm-hmm. want to put the money out, which I think is absolutely stupid. I don't know what the right. problem is, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. Business. It's not a wise business strategy to, to hold on to your cash. No, and, your and, and it's not a wise decision to not go get more cash if there's mm-hmm. super profitable things to invest it in. So mm-hmm. um, the, the bottom line is, 2022 is the year where if you're turning away a cash discount deal because of an investment that needs to be made to get it, you're an idiot. Yep. I'm sorry, but it's just stupid. I don't know what you're thinking. I really don't. I mean, if it's a reasonable investment and it's like, you know, when I say reasonable, I mean, you're going to make at least a hundred percent ROI on this investment. Like, what are you doing? I don't understand. Like you, do you have a retirement account? Are you excited about your 8% return? Like, okay. So what are you thinking? I don't, I don't get it. I really don't. So I, yeah, I, I talk don't to, I, I talk to people all the time about it. It's so funny. Like I'll talk about deals all the time. And it's like, oh, I would have got this one deal, but they already have this point of sale system. And I'm like, well, did you offer to replace it? Oh, my no, it would have cost $50,000 to replace it. I'm like, why? Well, cause it's 10 locations. They do 70,000 a month per location. And I'm thinking, hello, 70,000 a month per location. <laughs> right. And so you're yeah. going to make what you're, you're going to make, make 200 basis on points. you like, I don't, I just don't understand. I really don't. So 2022 is the year that you need to be thinking in terms of how to reinvest your capital, how to access other capital from your ISO, from your processing companies, from banks, from whoever. And it's hard to not find capital at a rate that would make it a reasonable investment to get hundred percent return. So yeah. um, be thinking about that. Don't lose deals. You know, you know, go to market with your best offer. 2022 is probably going to be your last chance to go after cash discounting in a market where you're pretty much, you know, I mean, there's a lot of competition already, but you know, there's still some open runway ahead of you in 2022, a lot well, of open yeah. runway, you know? And I think what, I think your point is well taken, James. It's not like you have to go out and find new customers to pitch cash discounting to you. You already, right. most people listening already have a portfolio with merchants on interchange right. plus or something else. All right. you can do is, you know, the best thing to do is to go into your merchant, 
say, hey, you know what? I can save you even more money if you do this. Right. And say, hey, here, here's a program. Do you want it or not? You know, I mean, yeah. a third of them are going to want it. And, and then, you know, then you can continue, you know, making sure everybody knows about it. <clears throat> You're going to get another third over the next few years as people right. are starting to hear about it more. And they're like, oh, that's right. But, you know, I know that Susan said she offers that. I'm going to call her back, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, that's important. But then again, even going out and getting new accounts, um, you know, if, you, if you're going out to get a new account, you know, what is this barrier? You know, I mean, I, 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 oh, it's just so frustrating. Like, I'll give you another one that I love, Patty, that I say that facetiously. You know, I would have sold this merchant, but they already have a clover and I can't, you can't swap out clover. And I'm like, okay, hold on a minute. You were going to sell a cash discount deal to a merchant doing $50,000 a month and they need an $1,100 device. You yeah. needed to buy them a new $1,100 device and scrap their old one, and you said no. You're going to make $1,100 a month in residual. Like, what are you thinking? Go back to your ISO if you're broke and say, hey, I need $1,100. Take it out of my first month of residual. I'll break even that month. Right. You know, and right. then I'll make eleven hundred dollars a month forever. What like so anyway, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about it just because I, I get frustrated when I see when I see agents and and you know, individual agents, especially when I see them, you know, not understanding what's possible. Mm-hmm. And then when I see ISOs acting against their own interests. Yeah, yeah, that's the part that blows my mind. I'm yeah. <laughs> You know, it's like, well, James, why do you keep talking about that? My agents keep calling me, asking me for money so they can go get these cash discount deals. And I'm like, you're welcome. (laughs) You know, why are you upset with me about this? You're welcome. Yeah, your agent's reaching out to you saying, I need $10,000 so that I can make you, you know, $800 a month. And and you're looking for acquisitions? You're crazy. Take the money that's right in front of you. So anyway, all that to say, 2022 is the year to put some capital out there to get bigger accounts on cash discounting because- this is the year where bigger accounts with cash discounting is the open market. Like that's where it's at, you know, fine dining restaurants or, you know, and things like that. But, um, you know, larger merchants, that's the open market. There's still a lot of room in the smaller ones, but nobody's been selling the big ones. And this is the year that everybody's going to start selling them. So the winners are going to be the ones that are saying we've got capital. We're willing to invest it to get these big accounts. So take a look at your current portfolio, go get some new accounts, leverage your capital, make a lot more money in 2022. Great advice, James. Thanks. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Well, James, we have uh, more bad news for MasterCard and Visa from across the pond, as they say. Okay. Last last fall, you may recall, Amazon announced that it would stop accepting Visa cards issued by banks in the UK, sure. citing rising interchange. Yep. At the same time, of course, uh, Visa said, it, you know, you know, as we expected, Visa said it was in discussions with Amazon on a resolution. There was even we even speculated here, I believe, that Amazon was using this thread as sort of a negotiating tool, you know, to carve out some better rates. Um, it's a you know it's a tactic that's been used by other retailers like Kroger sure. and uh, yep. and Walmart. So, but last week Amazon execs told a UK news outlet, The Mirror, that there had been no resolution and that the company would no longer accept UK Visa cards beginning January nineteenth, which is right wow. after this podcast goes out. Um, 
Also last week, UK lawmakers said they plan to scrutinize Visa and MasterCard interchange after the country's payments regulator said it was uh, it had found evidence, no evidence to justify ongoing interchange hikes. Mm. You know, the uh, UK's payment system regulator in a report in November found that British retailers with card sales ranging between 15,000 and 50 million British pounds, which is roughly $20,000 to $69 million. That those are the guys that are being really hit hard by rising increase. And, and by now, the way, just I have to back up for one second. I'm sorry. Sure. Just for context here. So the the rates in the UK that they are saying are prohibitively high for merchants. And and they're the lowest in the industry. They are they are point <laughs> I believe it's point two seven percent is the average effective yep. rate. Yeah. Of interchange. And, and and it can go up as high as uh 0.3 for debit cards. Well, yeah, what I'm saying is it's the, the but if you look at the the average, oh, yeah. well, I saw some numbers and the average yeah, effective yeah. rate of interchange some is something like right 0.27. Right. It's like, yeah. and this is prohibitively high and is requiring additional regulation. Yeah. Like, yeah, hello, here we are in the good old US of A processing, I don't know, 30 times more than they do in the UK, maybe 50 times more, I don't know. Oh, and yeah. we're paying effective rate of 1.8%. That's unbelievable i mean we're, we're six times higher than the uk so the context of all of this thing that amazon is doing and all these and you right. know the interchange is going up and how the merchants are upset and how the government's taking action just bear in mind this is a country that is paying one-sixth the interchange effective rate that we are so anyway i just had to throw that and, <laughs> and and it's also interesting too because i think there's like sort of a international kind of uh squabble here because while Visa was raised, you know, basically Visa was when it broke out of Brexit. Yeah. Um, that's when it when this whole ball um, began on spooling because e in the EU they had regular, you know, they set yes. these caps of two percent and three point uh, two percent and point three percent. And when Britain exited the UK, that meant the caps no longer applied. So not surprisingly, Visa and Mastercard took that opportunity to raise interchange. Oh, now but, that's interesting. I actually hadn't thought about that. I actually yeah. didn't think about that. So what, so yeah. hold on a second. So let me, so let me back up for a second. So actually the, the thing that they're complaining about is under the EU, they did have the 0.2 and 0.3% caps right now after Brexit, those no longer exist. And now Visa and MasterCard it, it, are trying to raise interchange rates for you to do what they want. Yes. Okay. I got it. All right. Now, now, and, I'm, all right, now I'm up to speed. <laughs> you see what I mean? And, yes. and especially it's difficult because, you know, Britain's just a small part of Europe. It's it would you know it's no bigger than say the state of California or something, right? Right. Um, and um, all those people are buying things online from other European countries, right? And that's where you know a lot of the complaints are coming, um, you know, because it's like wait a minute if I if I buy it here uh, in the UK it's maybe point two, but if I buy it from Germany it's going to be point three or four. Yeah. And that's how Visa and MasterCard started this. And and it's also, I think it's also worth noting that at the time that Visa decided to do that, and actually here, excuse me, cross borders are 1.5% for credit and 1.15% for debit. Hmm. But, you know, the thing is, is that they they announced these increases at, at the same time that they're scrapping plans to hike interchange here in the U.S., Right. If you remember last right. last winter, Visa yep. and, and it's, it's not it. like the it's not like businesses in uh, you know 
Britain have had a, an easier time of it than we have. <clears throat> right. It's exactly. been harder, really. Some people would say it's been harder, you yeah. know? And uh, so, you know, none of this obviously has been, uh, you know, missed, you know, overlooked by the uh, payment systems regulator, which is says it's planning, quote, remedies. Um, and then a uh, leader in the, uh, the chairman of the Treasury Committee, which is a panel in Parliament that's roughly equivalent to our, you know, banking committees, um, says it's going to hold leader. It's going to hold hearings with leadership PSR in early March to explore these remedies. Um, so um, I, I just love this quote from from the uh, chairman of that committee. Given that Visa and Mastercard currently dominate this space, it's vital to ensure there is sufficient regulation and competition in the market so that businesses are not subject to ever increasing servicing charges. Right. And all they have to do to all they have to do to see that playing out is to look at the US market. (laughs) Exactly. I'm not a big fan of regulation, don't get me wrong. But uh, something needs to be done and I think something is being done. I think I think in the US we are handling this the way that we handle it, which is with the free market through surcharging, cash discounting, non-cash adjustment. Right. And, you know, merchants are saying no. Uh, and, you know, we're doing a free market approach. So I think it's a, uh, it's a very, we have a very different culture, very different market in, in terms of how we look at regulation. But um, I think ultimately, you know, this idea that the cost of processing payments, the, the actual true cost of processing payments continues to decline while the cost to business owners to process payments continues to go up. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and the only, that's a, that's an un you know the equilibrium is way off on there and and right. it's not just the merchants right. that are you know that are tiring of this yeah well and you and you know that it's not a fully free market system when that happens right, right? because it, let, let's say you know and again just I know I'm going off track here a little bit but it just it, I'm very passionate about this stuff because you know when you think about it let's say we had a business that makes you know widgets. Right. And they're selling these widgets for $10 and the cost to make a widget is $5. They have a 50% margin, right? right. Well, <clears throat> what's going to happen if their cost goes down to $2 to make a widget, but they raise their price to 15? Well, right. what's going to happen is there's going to be another competitor that's going to say, hey, we're selling widgets for $9 because the cost is only two. Like there's going to be another company that's going to come in and say, well, wait a minute, we'll take that. Pro- we don't mind taking a lower slice of the profit in order to get a big piece of the market. So that's what happens in a free market system. When you see that that doesn't happen, you know that you're not dealing with a free market system there. And you're dealing with either a monopoly, collusion, both. Um, And so- Duopoly, which is really what we have here. Exactly. Duopoly. Exactly. And so now, again, there I know there's others that might disagree that would say, well, yeah, but look at the card benefits in the EU and how, you know, there there's not as many of the cashback rewards and all of that there versus here. And there's not all those incentives, but I would say it's a mature market. You, you know, I, I am going to pay with my card because I don't pay with cash. That's how I pay for things with my card. Do I right. like the cashback? Sure. I'll take it if you give it to me. Is that dramatically impacting my right. decision to use plastic versus cash? No, I'm going to use plastic all day. No, I don't even use plastic. I use my phone. Like, right. you know, I'm using Apple Pay. Like, so, you know, I, I think it's a mature market. And so anyway, I know I'm, I'm stealing your thunder a bit, but no, I just No, no, no. I mean, you know, basically <laughs> we've, we've hit all my points, you know, which is yeah. that, you know, this is really a free market issue and we don't have a free market. And, you know, yeah. I think it's very interesting that what happens in Europe eventually crosses the ocean and comes here it does so so i i'm just sort of warning people this is sort of like a warning siren that we could expect some debate on regulation in the u.s as well i agree good stuff patty thanks for sharing it sure thing man 
Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.